the outset of the service from James chapter 4. If you'll turn there tonight for our text, James chapter 4. We hear much preaching about the subject of revival. We pray for it in almost every service. And truly those who know the Lord and love Him desire to see a deeper work of the Lord in our homes, in our churches, our ministries, in our own personal lives. I think the secret, if there's such a thing of revival, is found in our text here. Let's look together in James chapter 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask... And receive not, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Of course, there the world is not the physical planet, but it is that system of thoughts and philosophy that excludes God. It is the mindset of any age, the philosophy of life, of the masses that excludes God and His Word. Believers can be influenced by the world's philosophy and direction. The Bible tells us, for example, in Romans chapter 12, that the the world's uh, goal is to mold us into its own image and we're to be transformed into the image of the Lord. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain that the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. That is an idea that Paul... Uh, that the, James introduces early in the letter about the double-minded person uh, who will receive nothing from the Lord. The word literally double-souled, living two lives or having two thoughts at once, a conflicting thing. He mentions them here again in verse 8, you double-minded, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves Therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. I want us to look in verse 8. This whole portion of Scripture addresses the subject. But verse 8, draw nigh, draw near to God. When we allow distance to grow between us and God, it is because we fail to keep our hearts with all diligence. Proverbs 4, verse 23 commands, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. That word keep has the connotation of maintaining, of protecting, observing, preserving. It is an ongoing uh, duty of the believer to keep our hearts. And then the word diligence, keep thy heart with all diligence. The word diligence is to guard one's post like a sentry on duty, to watch over. 
Do you see what effort and care that we're to give in our spiritual lives to take in spiritual matters, watching, preserving? These are active, serious, uh, working words, preserving, guarding our hearts. We could say maintain and protect and observe and preserve your heart, your inner man, like a sentry would or, or a guard would watching over things given to his care. For out of the inner man, for out of your heart, flow the springs of life. First Timothy 4 verse 7 commands us, Exercise thyself unto godliness, for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of thy life that now is and of that which is to come. And then we're reminded of the injunction by the apostle, that though the outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. That word in 1 Timothy 4, exercise thyself to godliness, is the, in the Greek is the word that we get our English word gymnasium from. And so we see immediately what comes to mind, like one training in a gymnasium, getting in shape, spiritually speaking, the inner man is to be exercised, not lethargic, not slothful, not just coasting along. Uh, a regimen, a plan, uh, includes temperance, self-denial, and spiritual goals. Well, this is all a part of drawing near to the Lord. And I would ask tonight at this prayer meeting, do you have a, a plan? Do you have a regimen for reading through the Scripture, for example, or for praying, a systematic way of praying. Some criticize such advice, but the scriptures we see here tell us we should take heed and to exercise and to observe. These are not haphazard things, not just coasting along in neutral. Do you have a set time where you meet with the Lord, and talking to Him, pouring out your heart, making a request, worshiping Him, interceding for others? As a congregation, we have set times for prayer, set times for, for worship. Why? Well, if we just said, let's gather someday, sometime on, on Sunday, we know how that would work, don't we? We'll all get together on Sunday. We have good intentions, and some might filter through, but if there's not a set time, if there's no purpose, no planning, no preparing for that, we wouldn't do it. If we didn't put a, a premium on it in a certain, certain time and hour for gathering together, and so it is in, uh, individually as well. And in family worship, set aside times and appointments, where we meet. Our Lord says, Enter into your closet, and the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Do you make an attempt to assimilate the Scriptures into your soul? In the Old Testament manna was given, uh, the Lord sent it every day, and there was a systematic way, instructions of gathering that manna, and that manna is a, a literal picture of the, the spiritual manna that we're to gather every day early and to, to go about it and to be systematic in making sure that we handle it in the right way. Well, do we make a, put a premium on the means of grace? In other words, those things that God has established in our lives and given to us to help us grow and to guard and to keep our hearts. This is not something we do blindly, hoping somehow or another we can get through. No, the Lord has given us the resources and instruction about how to do this. And so James sums it up here, draw near to God. It shows action, doesn't it? If you're drawing near to something, like a magnet drawing toward that, our hearts are to be turned toward Him. We're to make effort to clear the way, to lay aside every weight in the sin that does so easily beset us. 
Paul tells Timothy, till I come, give attendance to reading. And he gives this format, if you will, of what should take place in the worship services of the church. Till I come, give attendance to reading, the public reading of Scripture, uh, to, to exhortation and doctrine, that's teaching and preaching, public assembling together for corporate worship. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, the Holy Spirit's presence and work, Paul is referring to there. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. You see what effort that is? You know, when you give yourself wholly to something, it's not some haphazard on again, off again, maybe so thing. No, there's a, a mindset. There is a goal set that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. Again, we see these action verbs, verbs that point to action on our, on our part. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now, he was commanding Timothy as a pastor to set the example and to lead the way in this area of drawing near to the Lord. Part of the pastor's job is to stir the people up and to remind us of these duties of seeking the Lord. We have so many promises in the scripture from the Lord. Seek me while you may, while he may, seek the Lord while he may be found. The time is now. He, he promises all that seek me will find me. Well, how is it then that we would seek the Lord? Well, we'd better go to where he says he will be. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. That's a good start, isn't it? Where will, we, where will the Lord speak to us? He will speak to us in his word. We pour out our hearts to him as we will in this prayer meeting. But the Lord will speak to us through his word. The reading of the word tonight. The Holy Spirit has already revealed to us and shown to us uh, areas in our spiritual lives that we should take heed to. And so this is what it means to draw near to God. To observe these things. To obey them. To put them into practice. Now, drawing near to God is, is, an, is actively pursuing an intimate love relationship with him. I preached at a, a family conference this weekend, and there was everyone is in a church from newly married to people who'd been married 64 years. I asked this uh, couple, you know, they were holding hands, this little couple, and I said, what is the secret of being married 64 years? And he said, well, this right here. And he showed me they were holding hands. And I thought, that, that, is, that is it, isn't it? They purposed to draw near to one another. They purpose to keep the, the fire burning and their, their love fervent for one another. Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him. How is that? We'll have to apprehend. We'll have to chase after. He goes on and gives those words and the power of his resurrection. How is it that we're to know the Lord in the fullness of his power, his resurrection power, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death? Well, truly the redeemed heart yearns for communion with the Lord. The psalmist said in Psalm 27, verse 8, When thou said, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. The Lord commands us to seek his face, and the psalmist determined that he would do just that. I would ask us tonight, Are you determining in your heart to seek the Lord's face? Psalm 42, verse 1, As the heart, the deer, panteth for after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. There's no spiritual water in this world around us. 
I see so many of God's people seeking refreshment from broken cisterns. There's no water there. But the psalmist said, I will seek the, uh, in this, where there's no water in this dry and thirsty land. We come to the living water. As the Lord told the woman at the well, that well, you'll never thirst when you drink from this water. To see thy power and thy glory as I've seen thee in the sanctuary. Psalm 84, verse 1. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. And my heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Well, God issues an invitation. Think of it. From, the, from heaven, our Lord issues an invitation as our Heavenly Father to those of us who know Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to fellowship with Him. He desires to fellowship with us. And we see that grand text that evangelists often use and soul winners often use. But in the context there in Revelation 3, verse 20, our Lord is speaking to a congregation who profess to know him. And the, the, the picture is him standing outdoor, outside the door, knocking on the door of the church, longing for fellowship in his church. What a sad picture that is. As a little boy... In the vestibule of the church where I grew up, there was a, over the table where they kept the, 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 Lord, the, the um, plates, the offering plates. There was one of those pictures. You've probably seen it. The Lord is standing out there with a lamp, lantern in his hand, standing at a door. And uh, he's, he's knocking at the door. And there's no doorknob on the outside. It has to be open from within. And it's depicting that picture. Now, the picture we often tell a sinner if you'll open up and let the Lord in, He'll come in and save you. But in the context, He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and fellowship, sup with him. Well, that's the picture of the Lord longing to have fellowship with us and us seeking after Him. Now, James gives us a word here about how to go about this. There is protocol. As you would imagine, as we approach the sovereign of the universe... There are ways, there is a, a, a protocol in approaching him. And yet he makes it so clear and so plain. Then he issues an invitation. And then he helps us to come. Our father does it all, doesn't he? But he tells us to come. Now James tells us in verse 8 that we're to cleanse uh, our hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now these are imperatives. These are commands. You purify you cleanse your hands. You purify your hearts. Having one's mind or soul divided between God and the world, that's the daily battle of each of us. Now, we've mentioned that, that problem of double-mindedness, double-souledness, loving the world, loving, saying we love the Lord. And our Lord asked that question, didn't he? Can any man? It's an impossibility. The way that question is being asked it's a rhetorical question. Can any man love to serve two masters? No. Anything with two heads is a monster, someone has said. Well, that's, that's a monstrous thing to try to serve and love two masters at the same time. Well, Christians profess to do that. Oh, we profess to know and love the Lord all the while loving the world, being enamored by it, wanting to fit in, not wanting to be an ostracized in the world, not wanting to stick out like a sore thumb. And adapting the world's ways. We mourn and long for revival. We see so much of the world in our church, in our own hearts and lives. The problem, we see it here painted in the worst language, the harshest picture here, adultery. What a filthy word that is. 
But James says, you as a believer commit spiritual adultery when you have one mindset toward the world. You entertain the world's philosophies. You laugh the world's jokes. You're entertained at the world's... How could we we ever sit and allow the the things that our Lord died for? How could we laugh at them and entertain ourselves by them, invite them into our homes and watch them? You see the problem? No wonder we're cold and indifferent. No wonder prayer meetings are, are not attended as they could be or should be. Let's examine those of us who are here, our own hearts and lives. What is flooding our minds even as we're here? The cares of the world? The things that uh, would, would draw us away, the, having our mind divided between God and the world. And a double-minded person, I just re- remind you, is an unstable person. That, that person, uh, whether it is at work or wherever they are, if, they're, if, they're, if their mind is somewhere else, they're not going to be attentive. You don't want a, a, a distracted pilot on the plane that you're flying in, do you? You don't want to be on an Amtrak train where... A driver is texting and being distracted. You don't want to be in a car when someone's doing that. But you see, that's the picture. Distracted. Being pulled away by the world and thoughts and and dreams that that conflict with the Lord's will for us. We're to repent and to confess our sins at salvation and we're to continue repenting, turning from our sins and and, and, uh, our hearts altering our heart's attitude toward them as the Lord reveals the truth about our sins in His Word. Every time the Word is read, oh, the Holy Spirit will show light. Every time it's read publicly or privately or preached, the Lord so graciously comes along and shines the the spotlight of His Word in the crevices that we might overlook. And uh, where light is shined, we see all kinds of things. The hands and the heart go together. He says here to, to cleanse your hands and to purify your heart. The hands and the heart are together. The hands symbolize our outward life, as Romans tells us, Romans 6. We're not to yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness. And the, the, the outward life and the heart speaks of the inner man, the unseen part of us. So we have here this dual action. What the hands will do begins in the heart. Our Lord tells us that everything that comes out in action has already been birthed uh, through the thought life. How do we kill sin? Well, we better kill it in its embryonic state. The thought. The thought is there before the action will ever be. That's why the Bible says casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The hands and the heart were put together because we do what we do because we are what we are. I often give you that example, but it's the best one I know of. A a baby rattlesnake is going to grow up one day and do what? Be a big rattlesnake. Why? You might have pampered it and petted it and fed it and kept it in a cage, but at at some point you stick your hand in a rattlesnake cage and I guarantee you're going to be bit. Why? Because a snake is what a snake is. It is a rattlesnake. It is a venomous, poisonous snake. And we sin because we're sinners. We do what we do because we are what we are. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And that whole psalm pictures fellowship. It, of course, pictures ultimately going and dwelling with the Lord in heaven. But it pictures the fellowship 
abiding with him. Who is that person that will enjoy the presence of the Lord is what he's at? Who shall stand in his holy place? The fact that we can stand before the Lord is because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he answers the question. Don't you love it when the scripture asks a question and then gives the answer? It's very gracious of the Holy Spirit to do that. Who will stand before the Lord? Who can ascend to his holy hill? He that hath, what? Clean hands. So, there must be care to make sure we have clean hands. Now, we live in a day where much emphasis is put on that. Do you know in years ago, uh, science and medicine didn't really realize that, that the hands spread the germs. And often doctors would go from one patient to another patient. I've read records where a doctor might would go from surgery and then to go treat a patient and then another patient before all this was understood without washing their hands. Well, we cringe at that today. We have all kinds of uh, germ-killing germ things on the walls and the, uh, the buildings and the hospitals and so forth. We're very particular about cleaning our hands. Well, it's just a picture of going through this life. We know that physically speaking, you know that you need to wash your hands before you put something in your mouth, you come into contact, especially when you come in the cold and flu season that will be upon us. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. You see, they're together. James puts them together. The psalmist puts them together. Who hath not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. If we wish to reign with Christ, we must be and act like him, which is proof that we truly have been born again. Well, every believer will have times of spiritual drought. We are, after all, in these bodies that conflict against us, that war against us. In fact, he tells us in verse 5, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain or for nothing, that the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? When we're saved, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit of God literally comes and indwells our bodies. It's a mystery. What? Know you not the Spirit of God which dwelleth in you? And the Bible tells us in Galatians, the flesh... Our old unsaved nature, our fallenness, our, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's a warfare here and this is exactly what James is describing. Do you not think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth? What is he saying? The Holy Spirit desires to control us. He, we are at, he, he purchased us, he bought us, we're the Lord's and he desires to use his vessels as vessels of honor he wants to control us and we must have his grace to do that satan comes against us we have a drought sometimes spiritually speaking we are in these bodies we do have our old nature which is constantly with us reminding us of our frailties we have attitudes and actions that have to be put down we have to confess sin we have to watch, as we mentioned, or keep our hearts with all diligence. Why? Because of thoughts and attitudes and actions. Pride. Oh, pride is like a weed that will take over a garden in a second, won't it? You turn your back on pride and your garden of your heart will be absolutely covered in the kudzu of pride. Taken over, choked out. So these things have to be dealt with. Spurgeon writes in his devotion book, Morning and Evening, on the text, I sought him, 
but I found him not from the Psalm of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 1. And he says this, Tell me where you lost the company of Christ, and I will tell you the most likely place to find him. Have you lost Christ in the closet by restraining prayer? Then it's there that you must seek and find him. Did you lose Christ by sin? Well, you will find Christ in no other way but by the giving up of sin and seeking by the Holy Spirit to mortify the member in which the lust does dwell. Did you lose Christ by neglecting the Scriptures? And of course, he's speaking of fellowship with Christ. Did you lose Christ by, in the Scriptures? You must find him in the Scriptures. It is a true proverb. Look for a thing where you dropped it. It is there. So look for Christ where you lost him. He has not gone away. It's hard work to go back for Christ. Bunyan tells us the pilgrim found the peace of the road back to the arbor of ease where he lost his role, the hardest he'd ever traveled. Twenty miles onward is easier than to go one mile back for the lost evidence. Take care then when you find your master to cling close to him. But how is it that you've lost him? One would have thought you would never have parted with such a precious friend whose presence is so sweet whose words are so comforting, whose comfort is so dear to you? How is it that you did not watch him every moment for fear of losing sight of him? Yet since you've let him go, what a mercy that you're seeking him, even though you mournfully groan, oh, that I knew where I might find him. Go on seeking. For it is, a danger, it is dangerous to be without your Lord. Without Christ, you're like a sheep without its shepherd, like a tree without water at its roots like a sere leaf in the tempest, not bound to the tree of life. With your whole heart, seek him, and he will be found of you. Only give yourself thoroughly up to the search, and verily thou shalt yet discover him to thy joy and gladness. The old-time preachers used to remind their people, keep short accounts with God. You know the old accounting books? receiving and all the debts owed and and the balancing of the books. Now, at salvation, the record is clear, isn't it? In fact, we sing that old song, the old account was settled long ago. But daily we walk through this world, the fiery darts of Satan will come near us, thoughts, pride, as we've mentioned, will creep up, someone mistreats us and we want to react in kind, withhold affection here, do this there, to get revenge there. That's all a part of our human nature. It's sinful, it's ugly, it's horrible to even talk about it, isn't it? But you know as well as I do, we have to put it to death. We have to deal with it. We have to decide, I'm not going to be offended by that. I'm going to be like the Lord and forgive and put that aside. And so it's a daily working in the garden of the heart. If you had a pretty yard this year, I'll tell you what happened. Somebody got out there at some point and weeded and cut and edged. It didn't happen by accident. The most beautiful gardens are tended to. They take effort, fertilizing, weeding, cutting, pruning. Hard work, isn't it? It takes diligence, as we've said, keeping your heart, keeping the garden of your heart with all diligence. Well, if we walk in the light, John tells us, as he is in the light, he shows us how we ought to stay where the light is. Can you imagine driving home tonight without headlights? Well, it would be an impossible thing, wouldn't it? A dangerous thing. Oh, how scary that would be. You might have been in a situation like that. The lights all of a sudden go out. Sometimes on the freeway, sometimes in a time of storm or whatever, all the lights go out, how dark it is. What a scary thing it is to try to, to get around without lights. 
That's why we're told to stay in the light. Walk in the light. As he is in the light, we will have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing, literally cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we say we're talking about drawing near the Lord. The problem is some people say, well, I've not, I've not sinned. Or we excuse it. The reason I'm this way is this or that, some excuse. Well, that'll not get us back in fellowship with the Lord. Oh, we must be ruthless with our sins. Now, we have some friends that live down in, in the Prattville area, and we heard from them recently that the, the husband stepped out on the front step, and there was a, a rattlesnake on the front step. This is all in just the same day. The wife went to the restroom, and there was one on the bath mat. They found a third one in the house. Can you imagine snakes in the house? Not just snakes, but, but rattlesnakes. And the thing that on top of all that, they stayed there that night. I wouldn't have stayed anywhere. I think I'd have burned it down, don't you? And I know Kathy would not have stayed there if I had. I, I don't know where we would not have stayed in that house until the, the snake patrol people, whoever they are, wherever they may be found, would come and absolutely uh, let me know that there was no chance of, uh, you know, three. I mean, that's just unthinkable, isn't it? In a, in a suburban neighborhood. Well... Some people like to act like there's no, no problem. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? But do you know the sin that you allow to lay on the bath mat of your heart on the front door? and You, just, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't just coexist with, with snakes, poisonous snakes. You know, I think of Lot when he was fleeing for his life. And by the angel, the gracious provision of the Lord, he wanted another place, didn't he? See, this is just a little city. Can I go there? A little one. Just a little one. So often we plead with the, the Lord in that way. It's just a little sin, Lord. After all, I'm human. And we justify. We explain away. Well, they did this to me. I have a right to hold this grudge. I have a right not to do this. A right? Who told you that? What kind of lie is that? Did you not know as a slave of Christ you have absolutely no rights whatsoever but to be made right with Him? And stay right with Him and obey His Word. If we say we've not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. Now, we look in verse 9 of our text here. We're speaking of drawing nigh to God. And the record there in James, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Well, we want to have a good time and we want to be happy. And we want all things to be pleasant. So much so that... This kind of preaching is not well received. And most people maybe would be thinking tonight, well, Brother Lamb, I came to be encouraged. And here you are talking about mourning and weeping and uh, repenting. But there's no true spiritual joy. There may be outward laughter and smiles. But until we deal and kill the, the little snakes of sin in our lives, we kill them in, in the infant stage, the baby snakes. The old Puritan preachers used to say, the sin that you do not kill will kill you. And so we must be ruthless about it. How can we justify? How do we explain away? This verse 9 describes a person who's become miserable with their spiritual condition. They're sick and tired of the way they are. Being broken over our coldness. Someone might be honest enough tonight to say, Brother Lamb, I'm very cold spiritually. 
Well, that's a good thing to recognize. It's not a good thing to stay there, but tell the Lord about your coldness. Pastor, I don't even feel like praying. That's when you ought to pray the most. We don't pray because we feel like it. We pour our hearts out before the Lord and say, I'm so sorry I have a cold heart, a prayerless heart, that I've gone throughout all this day without so much as lifting my heart toward heaven or sinfulness or our backslidden condition. See, the only way you'll recognize backslidden condition is the the Holy Spirit showing you the Word of God. Because if you look in the mirror of your own uh, estimation of yourself, you'll look pretty good. You know why? You find somebody who's worse off than you are and compare yourself with them. That's the human nature. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. They're in a horrible condition. That's not the point. That's not the standard. You're looking at the perfect law of liberty. That's the, that's the mirror we look in and ask the Lord, Lord, make me broken. Break me, Lord. Blessed are they that mourn, our Lord says, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What a promise that is. God will not turn away a broken heart and a contrite heart over sin. David wept his way back to the Lord when he said, Lord, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Mourning is the inner response to such brokenness. Let your, verse 9 says, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Some folks are laughing when they should be weeping. What is there to, to laugh about? Loud, boisterous laughter is the word here, is the connotation here. The word for laughter is used only here in the New Testament. The Greek word is only used in this text here, this particular word. And the word signifies a flippant Laughter of those foolishly indulging in the world's pleasures and thinking they can sin and get by with it. Thinking that they've pulled the wool over everyone's eyes and maintained their status and their so-called spiritual status when all the while uh, they're in a pitiful, pitiful state. Laughing at the wrong things. Laughing at the things that Christ died for. The Bible tells us fools make a mock at sin. They, They do not take light the things of the Lord. Did you know that while a merry heart does do good like a medicine and uh, there's nothing wrong with humor and that kind of thing. I'm not implying that at all, but I just want to point out to you in the matters of the soul and sin, sin is no laughing matter. Your coldness spiritually is nothing to take lightly. Well, at least I'm not where I used to be. Where are, are you where you ought to be? Are you where the Lord wants you to be? That self-justification, that's a very pitiful thing, isn't it? Nothing to laugh about. Nothing to to smooth over. Very little laughter is recorded in the Bible. There is a time to laugh, Ecclesiastes tells us, but that same text tells us also what? There's a time to cry, a time to mourn, the appropriateness and the subject matter at hand. We never laugh at that which breaks the heart of God. And our being distant from Him is not a laughing matter. I see the, the father and the prodigal when, we're, when we are far from the Lord, the, the father in that story never left home, did he? He was always where he was. It was the prodigal who left. and had to come that long way back to the Lord. And God was there to, as in the picture there's the father, to receive and to restore. In verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. That word humble is contrition. It, it's, it's something that shows us 
what we, we really are before him. And we mourn over our sins. Well, I want to point to you as we go into prayer in verse 8, the promise. Verse 8 is really a promise. I love the promises of the word of God. And sometimes we don't see them as promises. But when God says something, you can count on it. And when he says, draw near to me, what is the opposite side of that? His part, our part is to draw near to him. What does he promise to do? I'll draw nigh to you. He's already there. We're the one that needs to draw nigh. The prodigal went back home to the father. Oh, you can come to him as you are in your hearts tonight. Draw near to God. He will draw nigh to you. Now, there's some stipulations there, aren't there? Cleanse your hands. Come for cleansing. But isn't provision made for cleansing? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. and Sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the vilest clean. His blood availed for me. Draw near to God. That's revival. That's having the heart opened and the the eyes toward the, the Lord. His face shining upon us. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. You double minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. We have the prescription here. The question is, at this prayer meeting, or in your own private time, are we willing to take the time and the effort to pray through these scriptures and tell the Lord our condition and ask Him to to speak to our heart?